Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. Hello, friends. Welcome back to the show. Today, we have Dr. Ayaz Burji on the podcast, and we will get to him in just one second. But first, did you know that almost a third of Jesus' teachings were stories? How well do you know these parables? How well do you know the greatest stories ever told? Do you know the secret to a stronger prayer life, the joy of spending someone else's money, or how to overcome anxiety or learn to forgive, or even how to ensure your unhappiness? In Down to Earth... A new book by Pastor Tom Hughes. We're guided through these amazing stories. They teach, challenge, convict, heal, comfort, and motivate us. They are the greatest stories ever told because they hold the power to change the world. In fact, they already have, but they are not done. Now these down-to-earth stories have come to change your world too. On the podcast, we have Dr. Ayaz Virgi. Uh, that is a medical doctor. Um, side note, two weeks in a row, Georgetown grad, last week and this week, something there who knows maybe next week we have alan iverson or alonzo morning or who knows patrick ewing i don't know but regardless this week uh we have the author of the new book love thy neighbor subtitle is a muslim doctor's struggle for home in rural america now uh this book came in the mail a few months ago and i was immediately interested of the uh, experience that someone would have uh, for the last couple of years of what our political climate has done to the experience of someone in middle America. Uh, as someone myself who, who spent some time in rural Southeast Ohio, um, I, I, I've lived in rural America and the idea of what it'd be like for uh, a Muslim doctor, uh, someone of brown skin and a different faith, and how um, what's happened in the last couple of years in our political climate would change their experience uh, was initially fascinating, and the book uh, did not disappoint. Uh, this conversation, I hope you find uh, really encouraging, and you hear more about what his experience is. Now, obviously, his experience is not everyone's experience, but it's definitely an experience that we all need to hear from. And uh, the book, Love Thy Neighbor, would be a great place to even learn more about what he has to say. So, without further ado, uh, here we go. <laughs> That's okay. I is. I know it's not I phonetically is. correct. Yeah, I is. Okay. You are the first guest. I've done a couple hundred of these ep- podcasts, and you were the first guest who I've ever had who is in between patients at their medical practice to get on the podcast. So thank you from, for stopping caring for the health of Minnesotans to talk to us. Pleasure to be here. Thanks. <laughs> outstanding. Outstanding. And um, okay, the, the type of medicine that you practice is? Sure. So uh, I'm a family physician, so I'm doing primary care and it's a rural medicine practice. So we do everything from outpatient to emergency room, take care of my own um, uh, hospital patients, uh, as well as uh, nursing home patients. And I'm also subspecialized in obesity medicine. So I run a obesity medicine practice alongside that in, in the hospital. Okay. So you went to school at Georgetown? Is that right? Yes. Did you do undergrad and med school there? Yes, both. Okay. And uh, you were living on the East Coast, uh, Pennsylvania, is that right? Correct. Okay. And then you decided you didn't want to practice uh, turnstile medicine? Is that what you called it? Yeah, that's right. And you wanted to practice dignified medicine. So you decided to make the move from, I was born in Philadelphia. So you you moved from my my home state of Pennsylvania out to Minnesota. (laughs) And you hadn't spent much time out there before you moved, right? That's right. Okay. And you were born in... Uh, Kenya, Mombasa. Am I saying that correctly? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So the move from Pennsylvania to small town Minnesota. That, I mean, that's that's a big one. I used to live. I, 
I was born in Philadelphia, then I moved to rural Southeast Ohio. That was a culture shock for me. I imagine the culture shock was more substantial even for you to go to a town of 2,000 people in Minnesota. Yeah, it was different. Mm -hmm. It was different. (laughs) That's all you're going to (laughs) say? No, no, I'll say more. (laughs) I'm happy to say more. So, um, you know, it was motivated by what you said. You know, it was, I was mid-career. I was doing really well, making lots of money and, you know, had the BMWs and the nice house, but it wasn't enough. It didn't really fill me what I needed. And I'd always done um, uh, some, uh, you know, worked in free clinics my entire career when I was in, uh, at Georgetown, I helped co-found the community medical clinic in Herndon, Virginia. When I was at Duke, I did, uh, I worked at the Urban Ministries Free Clinic. And then when I was in Florida, I worked at um, Red Crescent Clinic. And so for me, it was, you know, I want to do more. And I just see some of this corporatizing of medicine. And I felt like, you know, that it's not the best that we're doing for people or for patients. So, there were two two reasons I wanted to come to uh, rural Minnesota. The first was, as you mentioned, to to practice uh, a medicine which I felt was far more fulfilling and better for patients, um, more honest and more kind of. Uh, uh, treating the whole biopsychosocial model of the patient. Mm-hmm. And the second was to fill a void. Uh, you know, there's a lot of underserved areas in the country. And so if you look in um, rural Minnesota, for example, um, we have 20% of the population and only 9% of the physicians. And if you look at mm-hmm. the patients to doctor ratio in the cities here, it's about 250 to 1. But in the rural areas, it's about 1,800 to 1. So I wanted to do something about that, and it was huge. It was going uh, from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, to a town of, you know, Dawson, Minnesota, 1,500 people where there is, you know, a hospital, there's a post office, there's Mm -hmm. no traffic lights, there's, you know, we've got a pharmacy and, you know, hardware store, and that's about it. (laughs) It was was big. What what caused the impulse to want to help? uh, Because it seems for, for some people, they might say you're taking a step down professionally. Uh, yeah. To go small. What what is, what is the impulse? Obviously, you care for people. Where where would you say that desire originated from? You know, I think um, always it's always been there, and even that I think drove me to medicine originally. Mm-hmm. And I think um, when I was younger, I always knew I was going to be a doctor, and I was originally. Um, motivated. And I used to say this to people uh, when I was young and when I was in high school, I want to be a doctor. I want to go live on a farm, raise chickens and take care of people. Now that that's obviously very idyllic. And I didn't know what I was getting into uh, after, you know, the pain of medical school and all the debt and, and all of that, but that never really left me to do something more. And, you know, when I would, you know, work at, you know, free clinics and things of that sort, it really, uh, moved me more than just, you know, uh, professionally raising ranks in medicine. I've been probably the last 10 years in leadership positions and kind of working to help organizations that I was with um, either develop new service lines or help rescue them in uh, difficult circumstances. Mm-hmm. And um, in um, in Minnesota and in the Midwest, there's a lot of hospitals closing down. There's a lot of care that's shifting you know, and I wanted to come and try to help that. And I think we've been very successful over the last five years here in Dawson of doing that um, in our health system, which is, you know, really turned around and doing wonderful. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you, you make the move. And how old were you at the time you made the move? Uh, I think 39. Okay, 39. And you're married? And yeah. you're uh, you have a son? Do you have multiple kids? Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. So married 21 years, um, three kids, 18, 16, and 11. 18, 16, 11. Okay. And then, so this move happened, how old were your kids at that time? Uh, so Faisal, my eldest, was 13. Okay. And then Imran, 11. And then uh, Maya was probably six. Okay. So the story is, you guys make the move, small town, you want to help out, uh, you want to practice more dignified medicine. Uh, your wife, she goes out there, she has a business she's running, you have three kids. Um you know, the, the American dream, uh, doing the work that you love, your family, your kids. And then the story of the book really is what happens with your experience after the election in 2016 when Trump is elected. And um, one of the things from my experience that, that changes people's perspective more than anything else is hearing the humanity of someone else, of getting to know someone else's story. And uh, when your book came in the mail a couple of weeks or months ago, uh, I was initially just curious. Like this, this is a very compelling story to me to hear your experience. Uh, when it comes to the election, I think everyone had, uh, for some, this was a great day. For some, couldn't believe it happened. For others, it was an experience in which uh, you say in the book that you felt betrayed. So waking up that morning, I, in the book, you tell the story of, you know, you're going to bed, you don't believe it's happened, you wake up, and you have this feeling of betrayal. How, how could betrayal be the word that describes how you felt? Yeah, so it's, it's completely has nothing to do with politics, because I'm not a Democrat, I'm not a Republican, I don't have any um, firm roots in, in any uh, of those political establishments. But when you have a candidate who, during his candidacy and, and also during his um, term has been so vocally uh, anti-Muslim and has embodied hate. I mean, he said publicly, Islam hates us. He said publicly, Muslims need to be on a registry. Now, I'm not going on a registry. My daughter is not going on a registry. And he said, I remember even very distinctively during his campaign, he was um, given a rally and then somebody rushed into him. And then within a couple hours, he tweets, yeah, it was an ISIS person. He had a Muslim name. And that was totally a lie. It was actually a white Christian college student. And he didn't resent. He didn't, you know, relent or anything like that. So he clearly started making people like me who, you know, I'm a Muslim. I don't hate anybody. I love being in America. I love, you know, I've given so much of my career to, you know, you know, live here and to take care of people here. And so why, why am I becoming the other now? And now it's, it's not our first time around, you know, we went 10 rounds with Islamophobia in post on 11. Okay. You know, things happened. I wrote about it in the book and, you know, there are scars there still. So when this happened, it felt very much like, you know, I didn't have to be here. And I came and 65% of the uh, county voted for a guy who wants me on a registry. I mean, despite the fact that this guy also, you know, publicly made fun of disabled reporter, the things he said about women, but I mean, particularly um, visceral for me was this uh, stereotyping and then, you know, making it look like I was the problem. Now that, that, that stung because you can't, um, you can't take this and say, oh, well, I, um, I'm okay. I don't really feel that way about you. I just, I like his policies or what have you. You know, you can't, you know, imagine what, you know, somebody in the 
um, Holocaust who voted for Hitler because Hitler was popularly elected. He wasn't, he didn't, you know, usurp power said to a, a Jewish neighbor, Hey, you know what? I, I just liked him because of this. I, it wasn't, it wasn't nothing personal. It wasn't against that to me. You couldn't separate that. And, and then it, that coupled with what I experienced later kind of sealed the deal that there was something there before that I didn't see mm-hmm. when I went to do the first lecture and people protested saying a Muslim shouldn't be allowed to speak publicly. I was like, are you kidding me? Where did you get that from? Yeah. You know, and if that was there before, then why didn't you tell me? I just would never have come, you know, yeah. tell me that initially. And then it was almost like looking at my own existential, you know, experience in that people were like, okay, so are people really this nice to me and my family because I have an MD behind my name? And if they could take the brown Muslim part of me, rip it out, put that on a registry, they would, but keep the the MD part. And then it, it kind of, it's very disconcerting and it, you know, it, it's hurtful, of course. And you, you, you don't want to believe those things um, about people around you, but um, this was kind of a reality that uh, was starting to settle in after that. Yeah, I, I remember being in an airport and having a phone conversation with a friend of mine, a person of color, who after the election said, I don't know how to go to church with people who voted for Trump. And it seemed that their vote was directly against me. Now, I, yeah. I, I know... Uh, you know, luckily the church I'm a part of is uh, diverse politically, and there are people who, uh, you know, outspoken for and against, and I can't imagine any of them saying something directly towards this person saying, oh, I don't like you, but for some reason he felt like this vote was more personal than other votes. I assume, uh, as you describe those comments, it, it seemed like this is more personal than other elections. Yeah, you can't, um, you can't say those things. You can't say those things. Those are hateful and they're wrong. And then all of a sudden people are, you know, you can't say things like, you know, punch the guy in the face. I'll pay your legal. I mean, and then all of a sudden people just ignore that and vote for him and follow him. It's like, this isn't the WWF. This is real. Mm -hmm. And, you know, after he got elected, I mean, two, two mosques were burned down and hate crimes increased by like 80% against Muslims. That's that I knew that was going to happen, you know, and, you know, and you look at Charlottesville and you see, you know, it's not equal on both good people on both sides. You need to, you need to make a distinction. And, um, these were, um, this was hate. I think uh, you probably know it. I know it. And um, many people out there know it. And that that is what was tapped into to win an election. And, you know, it's not like Machiavelli. It's, you know, the ends justify the means. For me, it's not. And for hopefully many people, it's not. You can't just tap into this type of thing uh, just to win. You know, it's not about winning it's about justice and love and kindness, and that's winning. You know, you can't take winning in this life and then devoid that from winning in the afterlife. They are one and the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are connected. Yeah, it, it's interesting, the, the reference to WWF, uh, because many people have... It has been stated that he is using a similar um, kind of shtick that he used when he was in the world of professional wrestling, that kind of over-the-top, grandiose kind of uh, p- performance that... Like you said, it can touch on these things, even if maybe he's not in himself truly feeling what he's saying. He's just trying to rally up the crowd to feel a certain way to get behind him. Um, you, you have this phrase. He said that in his book. He said that in his book. I mean, he, he says really? he has no. 
yeah, he says, listen, people want the biggest, they want the greatest. That's why little hyperbole were basically lying never hurt. Mm. And he, he wow. espouses that. That's in the art of the deal. Wow. Okay. Well, I, I haven't read that book, but uh, interesting. You, you use the phrase Minnesota nice uh, to describe how, which seems like the South to me, like the small town America kind of everyone's very friendly. Uh, but underneath that, sometimes people's more honest, negative feelings are never communicated. And so in the South, we say this, bless their heart. Like if you say, oh, you know, they're terrible people, blah, 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 but bless their heart. And so it's a way to kind of whitewash that. And I've heard people connect this, that when there isn't an ability to be honest, the only way to kind of react against something you don't like is you go into a voter's booth, you shut the, the, the curtain behind you, and then you vote for Trump, and Trump becomes your way of expressing these feelings that you've kind of buried inside. What do you think the experience of Minnesota Nice has had uh, on the political world? So I do think there is um, a certain culture to kind of keep things under wrap and not talk about them. I don't want to stereotype and say, well, Minnesota Nice is some sort of passive aggressive way to just deal with differences because I do think people here are amazingly kind. They are amazingly good in so many ways. And, you know, the whole um, lecture series has been a journey for me too. I think there's a lot of fear and I think that that has um, caused a lot of people to as you say, um, express it in a voting booth for the guy who is the who's an you know a sociopath, quite frankly, and an egomaniac. Which you know anybody should be able to spot that from a mile away. But um, there are things that uh, are not talked about in public, and then maybe when that is just left things unsaid, conversations never happening about race, about. Um, you know, equity about these different things, then I think people will uh, express in more kind of radical ways through um, supporting, you know, a guy like this. Mm. So I think that people here, I think there is genuine nice, I do. And, but I think there is genuine fear too that's just not expressed Mm -hmm. in uh, day-to-day conversations. And one way I've, I've mentioned it with, you know, Dawsonites in particular, I, I don't think Dawsonites uh, um, care for racism. I don't think that at all, but I don't think they necessarily care about it either because it's not in the day-to-day thing uh, or day-to-day um, you know, experience. How would you differentiate those two? So um, if you were to talk to somebody who's, you know, I live in a primarily um, white Norwegian background community and none of them uh, treated me poorly or treated me, made me feel like, you know, you're brown, you're different, you're Muslim. I mean, I, I felt we were, um, uh, you know, uh, greeted with open arms and I was, you know, very happy. My wife, she wears a scarf over her head and nobody stared at her. And if anything, people were complimentary to her and things of that sort. But, you know, there are real things going on with, um, you know, uh, Islamophobia, uh, discrimination, not just race or religion, but gender and these other things. And I think that um, people here won't necessarily, they're not having those conversations Mm -hmm. because they're not um, so worried about that. It's primarily, like I said, a white community. They're more worried about maybe healthcare, more worried about, you know, farmland and weather patterns and things of that sort. So this to them is just, well, that can't be real. Like I can't, I, I can't, 
I can tell you how many conversations after the fact people are like, well, gosh, we never even thought of that. We never even considered that. That was the case. And I'm like, what do you mean? I mean, he said it publicly. He said, he said, Islam hates us. He said, Muslims should be on a registry. Oh, well, we didn't know you were a Muslim. We didn't know that, that, that you, you know, and I'm like, well, um, I had one patient come to me and say, well, you know what? I hope, you know, I don't think of you that way. And I'm like, but you should, I mean, I'm not trying to hide it, you know? So these things were there. And I think there's some confusion on, you know, uh, kind of how we felt and why we felt the way we did. And it wasn't in a way, at least from, uh, people I've spoken to. And again, you know, the people in the community, they're my friends, they're people that I respect. And, uh, initially after the election, of course, I was angry. I was very angry. Um, but post kind of, conversations now for now a couple of years, I can understand that there's a lot more fear than it is some sort of passive aggressive, yeah. um, you know, uh, something behind, you know, Minnesota nice. You said there's unexpressed fear. Do you think if, if they were able to dialogue, if they were able to bring the fear out, it would be, uh, it would be processed better. Is that what you're saying? I think it would have been much better. Okay. I think if people were, Hey, listen, we're really scared of Muslims. And then it would have given, like, even myself an opportunity to say, hey, why? Did you know that, you know, if you look at the country report on terrorism, there's less than, if all Muslim groups combined, there's less than 200,000, which are considered radicalized and radical groups. And this is data from the Department of Justice. And there's 1.6 billion Muslims in the world. And if you look at the majority of mass shootings in our country, they're not caused or not done by Muslims. Less than 3% are. 97% are done by other people. So, just because you see it in the media and you see this thing resonated over and over by people who have an agenda, that doesn't mean that that's reality. And I know perception defines reality. So if you have people who are, um, you know, just watching uh, right-wing media all day or even just left-wing media all day, I mean, that becomes the reality. And if you have, if, if there is something that you've uh, perceived as true and then you had an opportunity or you discussed it, you had a conversation, then you have an opportunity to dispel myths. Exactly like you said, when you start bringing the humanity of people out, then it starts being a road to understanding and that ultimately leads to peace. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so understanding people seems, from my experience, always to be like the first step. You have to understand where someone's coming from, understand their perspective. Uh, you know, in the book, you, you talked about the perspective, the experience of people uh, who were Trump voters. And there's a couple lines that you have in the book that, that I've heard uh, multiple people expressed. First one is, not everyone who voted for Trump is a bigot. Second is, I didn't vote for him, I voted against her. And in our kind of basically two-party system where it's one or the other, uh, there are a plethora of reasons why anyone makes the political decisions that they make. And your experience has one reality that happened after the election that I can never commiserate with. As, you know, a, a straight, white, Christian male living in Texas, my experience vastly different from your experience. How do you also balance the experience of someone who said, you know, it, it, it was because of healthcare or because of, you know, my convictions about abortion or fill in the blank as to why I voted maybe not even for him, but against her. And how do you co- like bring those together? Yeah. So at some point we have to use reason, right? We have to use intellect. We have to use rationality here. So if somebody so blatantly says, you know, that, you know, uh, punch the guy in the face and I'll pay your legal fees or says all Mexicans are rapists. Muslims are terrorists. They need to be put on a registry. You have to at some point own that. 
you have to say, okay, well, I am voting for that. It's a package deal. I'm not not voting for that. And the people who asked us, who, who said to me, hey, listen, I just voted for health care. And I said, my response was, okay, so the guy who's never had even one, you know, minute of public policy experience, he's been given a, you know, a silver spoon his entire life. How is he going to fix health care? You know, health is a complicated issue. How is he going to, you know, uh, improve it versus, you know, people who have worked on it for decades and what have you? Um, at the end of the day, I think that, um, you know, you can say, uh, listen, I voted against her or um, I voted because of health care. But you have to own that. These are the things he said publicly. These weren't private statements. These weren't, you know, oftentimes with politicians, we say, well, listen, politicians, they say one thing and mean another. And that's true. That can happen. People, they want votes, etc. But when you so brazenly take the level of morality of virtue from here up here and bring it down here and do that publicly in in no uh, interpretable way that that's to be uh, construed as something else. And somebody does that, then I think they have to own it. Mm -hmm. If they vote that way, they have to own it and say, well, you know what? I like, I don't like her, but he said these things and I'm going to vote that way. And then not be confused when people like me or others are like, that's just crazy because to me, I, again, I'm not looking at it through a political uh, spectrum. I don't know what the best policy is for the economy. I don't know what the best policy is for you know, immigration or health. I, I, I have ideas, but I'm not an expert. I, it's the anti-Dunning-Kruger effect. But I can very visibly identify, as can any rational person, blatant immorality, blatant lack of virtue, lack of, you know, uh, empathy, you know, and somebody who's, who says publicly, listen, I, my, my guys are so loyal, I could shoot somebody in New York City and they still follow me. I mean, you, you have to, if you're an adult, you have to own that. You can't just say, well, I voted against her. No, no, you voted for this, this blob of stuff that he represents. Hmm. You know, one of the things that uh, I, I like about, the book is very well written, by the way, but one of the things I really like about it as a person who is a pastor is that one of the heroes in the story is a pastor who joins you in this, who's supportive and as someone who is a follower of Jesus, to have another person who is a follower of Jesus um, be such a positive person in the story makes me feel really good. What do you think the church can learn from Pastor Mandy or Amanda, um, Reverend, whatever she goes by now, but the the Pastor Mandy character, what do you think that she she can model for the rest of Christians? Yeah, I wouldn't say just for the rest of Christians, but Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus and Whoever, I would say, you know, she was the epitome of love thy neighbor. She was that. She practiced that. She didn't have a stake in the game, but when she saw what was happening and things that were being said about us and about others, she took the action. And and she, you know, it wasn't me who said, hey, listen, I'm going to go do something about it. I was angry. I was ready to go. I was ready to leave. She was the one who came to me and said, hey, listen, let's do something about this. Let's um, let's educate. And that's when I was, you know, I said, okay, you know, I'll think about it. So, you know, um, and, and, you know, it says in James 2.12, faith without deeds is nothing. And that is absolutely what she's epitomizing is doing something about it and i think that um that that action uh particularly somebody who didn't have a skin in the game who wanted to support me and my family was inspiring to me 
and uh, none of this would have happened without her, you know, uh, uh, initiating uh, this lectures. And we remain very good friends today. I, I continue to be inspired by her and admire her. Hmm. That's great. And now she's up in, like, in the Northeast somewhere now. Is that right? Uh, she's still, she's still, she's in um, Bird Island or Atwater, which is really close to uh, where we are in Dawson. Oh, okay. It's about an hour. Okay, nice. Um, so what she does is she comes along and says, let's, let's have a forum for you to, to share a more accurate picture of your faith. And I, tell me if I'm over, uh, over analyzing this, but it seems like when it first happens, like you just said, you want to leave, you, you get on the phone trying to find real estate or to you know, put your house on the market. You go to your boss, say, I'm going to leave. You're going to quit. You're going to go to Dubai. Um, did having um, an ability to express your feelings and express y- your opinion, did that change how you could experience what you're going through? Yes. I think um, it was absolutely the right uh, means to um, start bridging an understanding and uh, definitely helped calm me down. I'd say it was therapeutic to some degree, but, um, you know, and not just understanding, not just other people understanding me, but me also understanding them, you know, kind of a two way street. Mm -hmm. So I absolutely say that was uh, the right direction. Mm -hmm. And so you initially write a talk that you give to your wife and your, is your oldest daughter? And, uh, and at the end, they're like, okay, that's not a good one. You got to start over. And as someone who gives talks every Sunday, I've had plenty of those yeah. and uh, didn't always have my wife or one of my daughters tell me to start over. So luckily they did. And they said, there are only three things people really want to hear, which yeah. are? Uh, terrorism, women, mm-hmm. Sharia. That's what they want to hear. Mm-hmm. Nothing else. They didn't want the philosophy. They didn't want the, you know, all this stuff, which it would have been a great, maybe college lecture. It was, it had, I had to go back and redo it over from scratch. And so you've since done multiple talks. Yeah. Are those the three things? Pe- 25. 25. So are those the three things people want to hear about the most still? I think so. Mm-hmm. I think people, it depends upon the audience. And, um, but there's always a robust Q and a that comes after that. But yes, I think those, those, um, are probably the, the hottest topics people want to hear about. And it seems if, if fears, the underlying issue fear that, um, we're going to be attacked by people of different religion than us. Uh, fear yeah. that they're going to that they are going to overtake our way of doing life, and fear that they are going to oppress women. It, I mean, those three things are all about fear, right? Am I reading that correctly? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think that I think that that's uh, very accurate, and that's a very uh, that's a great way to get consumers. That's a great way to get um, viewers um, when you start hitting the. You know, it's actually programmed in us. You know the. Um, fight or flight response, the the fear response generates a lot more attention, and it's much better to um, uh, to tap into that emotion if you want, you know, um, to capitalize on other people. And so that's happened over at least the last, I'd say, several decades when it comes to Islam, because every time you hear the word Islam, you hear about terrorism, you hear about the radicals, and then they exist and they're wrong, and I condemn it 100% with every ounce in me. Uh, you know, these radical groups, Al-Qaeda or ISIS, you know, they are murderers, they are losers, they are, you know, and I, I guess in my depth, sometimes I don't blame people around me for stereotyping because 
that's all you ever see in you know in the media. It's all you ever see around on the news. And maybe if I weren't Muslim myself, and I was kind of maybe I was a white American, that's probably what I would think about Muslims. So it's important to start that conversation and to to talk about truth. Truth is important. Truth should determine your reality, not your perception of it. Yep. And, and it takes some work to get past just perceptions to actually learn truth because perceptions you know they're, they're always around us they're easy to access and those kind of those easy sound bites are very digestible but you're you're talking trying to give you know a, a better picture and one of the ways and a true picture of of islam is that you do this great thing where you do uh, let me read a text um from from the American from the the Christian Bible that many Americans are are supposedly familiar with, and then you read a quote from the Quran, and uh, I'll have you know, you know, I've got a few degrees, so it's maybe not fair, but I got them all right. Just FYI, um, I'm I am a professional, so I should. But I can imagine uh, others wouldn't be able to differentiate some of those texts because there's a lot of texts that both of us have in our sacred texts. That, so I mean. There's a lot there. I get it. Um, but what I can imagine is most infuriating is to hear, like, for example, you reference uh, a text where Jesus says, I came to bring a sword, not to bring peace. And right. obviously, you look at the, the totality of what Jesus does. Obviously, that's a metaphor that's describing something bigger than just a literal sword. But if someone hears that and they say, this is what Christianity is about, that would be very infuriating to me for right. someone to take my sacred text out of context how does it feel for you to have that happen to you over and over again? It's terrible. It, it, I hate it. Um, and that's part of the exercise that we, we do as far as quoting these verses, because it's very easy to take things out of context. And then, um, you know, I was told, uh, you know, I was explaining this to uh, an audience member who was asking me the question and was quoting a, you know, it's very easy, just like, you know, the verse you quoted about Jesus said, I come to bring the sword, not to bring peace. And that was in the context of Jesus of life. You know, he, he was the most peaceful person around. He was basically saying, listen, um, you know, my message is, it's a peaceful message, but people are going to fight you. People are, you know, you have to be strong. You know, it's, if I'm willing and uh, able and to recognize that and to absolutely honor that, which to me is a very honorable message, then when you read in the Quran where it says, you know, kill them where they, where you find them or et cetera, without understanding what that was referencing and then telling me, well, that, you know, the, the Bible must be taken in context and the Quran must be taken literally, then how is it that you know so much and that I know so little? You know, it's, you must be really smart, you know? And, and that happens over and over. And um, that's probably the most exhausting part of it because um, there's a certain uh, number of people who, who come uh, to the sessions not to learn or to open their mind, but they come to, to tell me, what I've got, what I've got wrong. And it's fine, you know, and it's like, okay, so if I'm wrong, then they're like, no, you've got the wrong version of Islam. The real version is what Al-Qaeda says. And I said, oh, okay. So that's like me telling you the real version of Christianity is what the KKK says or what Jim Jones did. And that's just, I mean, again, the, the intellect, the rational part, we have to think, you know, and, and when, when we think, um, we can start understanding where our own double standards are. Yeah. And, and that, that is a, that is a, a difficult area. Yeah, a couple weeks on the podcast. A couple weeks ago on the podcast, I had uh, Barbara Brown Taylor, who uh, teaches a world religions class, and one of the things that she said is, "You don't listen to one of the strongest uh, opponents of a religion to describe that religion. 
That's not fair. Right. It's not fair to do that. You have to listen to the adherence themselves of the religion to describe the religion. So for me to tell you what your religion is like, uh, if I'm coming from like a malicious place, probably not the best place for us to be a good neighbor and to do unto others as we'd like them to do unto us. And so you said like that was one of the most exhausting things for you is to hear that over and over again. Absolutely. Uh, I'm sorry. As, as you said, um, you have to have sincerity in your heart. If you sincerely want to build bridges, if you sincerely want, sincerely want truth, then you have to go the harder distance, the road less traveled, which is, you know, understand what those individuals actually think about themselves, mm-hmm. not what their enemies think of them or their opponents think of yeah. them. Uh, so you've done 25 plus talks, done interview spots, obviously you've written the book, and uh, you tell at the end of the book a story of when you were actually trying to get a a break away from Dawson, and so you're going to go serve the military, taking care of soldiers for a month at an outpost. Where was, what town was that in? In Qatar, Doha, Qatar. Yeah, so when I go on vacation, I don't typically (laughs) go do my job at a different place, but good for you, I'm glad that that's how you vacation is by helping soldiers. But like, it's an exhausting process, and as you've been living through this and and being a spokesperson for, you know, more civil uh, engagement with one another, being a good neighbor, is tired the word that you still use to describe how you feel? It's definitely... Maybe tired is the word. Maybe it's... um, you know, I'm a human being like anybody else. You know, I have my good days. I have my bad days. I don't think I'm any type of hero. I'm just like anybody else. And there are days where you've got strength and you're ready to go and you're ready to tackle it. You're ready to tackle your, not just your day-to-day job, but, you know, these lectures, which, you know, I don't, uh, I don't get paid for them. And I don't, I basically take my vacation time off to go do this. And there are times I just want to say, you know what, I'm done. I, I'm done with it, you know? Mm-hmm. And then there are days where, you know what, I have to do it because if not me, who, who's going to do it? And, um, you know, there's, there's, there's definitely good that's coming out of it. So I guess it, it varies from day to day. So some days I just feel exhausted and tired. Other days I'm, I'm ready to go. Uh, I'm ready to go at it. Yeah. I would assume that the thing that would break my heart the most, um, as you told your story, the story uh, at, before the Trump election, uh, your wife had a lunatic with a baseball bat, like um, right. attack her, uh, intimidate her while she's driving on the highway or driving on the road. Uh, you have a story about in the book about your son who had a classmate say that say to him that his mom is a part-time terrorist. I, I can't imagine anything that would be more hurtful to me than my family having to face this sort of negativity. I assume, is that the same for you? Yeah, yeah, that's an Achilles heel. That hurts more than anything else. Yeah. That, that's, uh, that's the one thing that would stop me from doing lectures uh, more than anything else is the yeah. safety of my family and, and what they have to experience. And so your, your son, you said, was at a play or some sort of school thing, and you saw him sitting next to the kid who said that hateful thing about your wife. What did that communicate to you, seeing your son do that? You know, I think that, um, you know, kids, they say things they don't mean. And I don't think that that statement meant that the kid was bad. I absolutely disagree with that. I think the kid, the kid is good. It's just they don't know how hurtful it can be. And I think there's a certain amount of innocence, but there's also a certain amount of, you know, misinformation. And the fact that, uh, you know, he and my son can still be good friends, that's great. That's that's the right way to go about it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let me ask you a question. This is kind of turning, uh, making a left turn here. Um, so this past Sunday, 
there's a story that you might not have heard about, but there's a pastor in Virginia. He's in the middle of his one o'clock church service. He's preached a couple services already, steps off the stage for a few minutes, and he's gathering his thoughts before they're going to um, participate in Eucharist, this part of the Christian service. And he gets someone to tell him, someone comes over and tells him, President Trump is on his way here. He's going to be here in five minutes. He wants you to pray for him during the service. Have you heard this story? No, I haven't. Uh, And so this person, uh, you know, there's a text in scripture that says you're supposed to pray for your leaders. And he's thinking, well, you know, the Bible says to pray for leaders. Um, He wants to be uh, nonpartisan, but he wants to obey that. And he's stuck in a predicament of, what should I do? The Bible says to pray for our leaders. This guy wants to be here. He's going to be here in five minutes. What should I do? Uh, he, he did pray for him, and there's been uh, no small amount of backlash, and he's you know, issued, I don't, I don't think it's an apology, but he's tried to express where he's coming from. If you're, if you're in the room, let's say you're visiting service that Sunday. It happens. Let's say it was at my church, and you're visiting. You're in Austin, yep. Texas. You're there, and I say, I got five minutes to make this decision. Tell me what I should do. What would your suggestion be for me as a pastor if I'm trying to process? I got five minutes before the president's going to be here. What should I do? Is that prayer uh, out loud? It's, is that something that you? It's in the service in the in in the room in which everyone is is there. So it is out loud. It is verbally. It's not a silent prayer type. No, no, no. It, it, wait, okay. Are you asking what the president Trump wants or what that scripture calls us to do? Oh no, no. I, I understand scripture. So when it's time to pray for President Trump. Um, is it a prayer that the, the minister or the pastor will be delivering out loud or will it be a, like a silent type prayer? You can, you can make whatever suggestion you want. I don't, I mean, maybe it could be typical. I mean, it would be out of the, the, out of the norm for it to be silent in that moment. Yeah. So, I mean, I would definitely say, um, you should pray for anybody. We all need prayer. We're all broken at some level and it, it would be self-righteous to say, gosh, I'm just not going to pray for somebody else because we all have our own faults. But I might, if it were a prayer out loud, I might, um, put some um, aspects of virtue in that prayer and put some aspects of without being uh, without being, you know, uh, discourteous because it is the office of the president um, and um, trying to be positive. So I I absolutely would suggest, yes, you should do it. And then also, um, uh, if it was going to be a prayer out loud, which optimally it would be, then you would put in aspects of love thy neighbor and kindness. And I would talk about how Jesus said, in the Bible where nations that um, uh, break into groups and fight one another get destroyed. Uh, you know, I would put that in there and I would um, make sure that that message was loud and heard uh, to, to the congregation. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm glad that I was not put in that predicament. I think your suggestion is a good <laughs> one, um, but it, uh, it, it seems like an untenable position of what to do next at that point. Um, uh, your book though, uh, the title is love thy neighbor. It, it'll be out uh, soon, if not already. And, uh, I think I have an older copy right here, but subtitle, A A Muslim Doctor's Struggle for Home in Rural America. Did that get changed? Is there a different subtitle now? No, I think that's the same. All right. I got something saying it changed or something like that. Anyway, regardless. Uh, The cover changed. The the design changed. Okay. Got it. Well, I I like the cover. The cover is Minnesota. What's wrong with Minnesota? You don't like the cover? I that's t- uh, we, we all liked it. We all, and then I, I, just down the line, I think somebody from Penguin um, said, "Hey, we want to change it to because of the message is more not just for the state of Minnesota, but it resonates throughout the country." So we want to do um, make sure it wasn't uh, at least sounding like it was just Minnesota. I think that was the rationale behind That's, it. That sounds believable. That sounds believable. <laughs> well, let, me, let me just say this to you. I, I know you're tired from having to 
carry a lot of weight on your shoulders for leading these conversations, of, of giving these talks. Um, but I think we're better off when we hear your story and to hear where you're coming from and to hear your experience. So I appreciate it. I appreciate you writing the book. I think, uh, I think we're better neighbors when we can know each other better. So thank you for the book and thank you for uh, continuing to talk about it. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on. All, right. All the best. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.